Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to another edition of This Week in the New York Times, a post-progressive look at our progressive paper of record. And let me just get a grip here for a second. I don't need that. I don't need that. And I most certainly do need that. <laughs> All right, good. All right, well, yeah, this just in, this morning's newspaper, and I thought it was really significant. I'll actually show it. Um, yes. It is a article, a column by John McWhorter, and I've talked about John McWhorter before on the show. He's a new columnist to the New York Times. And John McWhorter comes out of, uh, I've, I've mistakenly referred to him as a conservative in the past, but he's not. He identifies himself as a classic liberal. And um, he just wrote a book that was uh, a, a big bestseller called Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. And in it, this is from the Google description, McWhorter argues that an illiberal neo-racism disguised as anti-racism is hurting black communities and weakening the American social fabric. So John McWhorter, who is black himself, he's off and on with Glenn Lowry and you know a lot of these black intellectuals that are coming from, uh, even though he doesn't self-identify from the right, he, uh, he's a hero, let me put it that way to people on the right. So he's now been hired as a columnist for the New York Times. He is a linguist by profession. He is uh, a professor at Columbia University. And he um, wrote an article today uh, that was, I thought, surprising and very good, very persuasive to me. And it's called Gender Pronouns Are Changing. It's exhilarating. And you can see they have an, a, a picture illustration of little scrabble pieces with who, she, him, they, and on he goes with his article. And I will share from it, make a couple um, comments on what I think is in the integral nature of him. And I, he, he's somebody I really like to pay attention to because he really can operate in, in uh, several different worldviews at the same time. So here it is, um, let me just see, it was in the, in the printed edition, it was in praise of new pronouns. So that's how it sometimes changed the headline. At any rate, he writes, oh, I also wanted to make the point that when I talk about this pronoun thing, this is a big flashpoint in the culture wars. And it was in fact, the th thing that kicked off Jordan Peterson as a public intellectual in the big, you know, superstar he is in that firmament. And that was, I, I forget how many years ago, probably four or five now, where he refused as a professor at Toronto University to uh, abide by a, a, a new amendment to the Canadian Human Rights Act to introduce, quote, gender identity and expression as a prohibited grounds of discrimination. And Peterson argued that that would uh, make use of certain, uh, would make, making use of certain pronouns was compelled speech and he wouldn't do it. And that be, you know, was his, his launching point. So, you know, McWhorter's coming from a 
different point of view here. And even though they have a lot of the same fans. So here's what he wrote. He said, the other day, I had occasion to use the pronoun they in the new way, referring to a specific person. And he uses the example, Roberta wants a haircut and they also want some highlights. I wrangled it, but it required a bit of conscious effort. Pronouns sit deep in our cognition, are used constantly and bound by habit. I know some find it wearying. Why does language have to change all the time with all we have to think about? But we are not unique. There are times when the language firmament shifts under people's feet and they get through it. And so he uses a number of examples. He talks about that in standard English, thou was the singular second person pronoun at one time. And then that fell away and people started to use you for both singular and plural. He talked about the advent of Ms. in the 60s and 70s how black went to African-American and is now back as long as you capitalize it. And you know, he pointed out that the problem here with they as a singular pronoun for a singular person is getting the subject verb agreement right. But he talks about how that was also you know, done and doable. And um, he, he, he mentions John and Abigail Adams, John Adams, of course, being founding father, Abigail, founding mother of the US. And that, that Abigail would write things like, I wish you was nearer to us. He talks about how people used to say, they wants to see you now, and that that could be a solution. They wants to see you now. He writes, another guess, as that there may be a call to differentiate singular they in writing by capitalizing it. Maybe that will catch on, maybe not. But discussion will be as lively as the one in Sweden over the gender neutral pronoun hen, H-E-N, which has dug in there for real. That's interesting. So he goes on, he says, you just never know how things are going to morph. Way back in Old English, the word for she was heo, H-E-O. And over time, that started to sound so much like he, that in some dialects, you just said he for men and women. Were things going to stay that way, given that a great many languages have gender-neutral gender pronouns of that kind? One may have wondered. But instead, English developed a new pronoun. Possibly it was by yanking a new feminine pronoun from a word that meant that, used with nouns of feminine gender. Or possibly it was something mysterious that arose in England and Scotland. Theories are various, but the result was a new pronoun, she. And most likely some people at first didn't like it. They died, and here we are. <laughs> I love that. They died, and here we are. And yeah, it's, um, you know, progress precedes funeral by funeral. <laughs> and I realized that for me, at my, I'm, I'm 67 and a half, 
<laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be able to wrap my head around this. I'm not sure I'm going to necessarily need to. But it does point to evolution as a continual unfolding of complexity. And that those grooves that McWhorter is talking about at the beginning of the article, you know, the pronoun grooves are very deep in a guy like me, you know. But for younger people, uh, they have a complexity of mind that they can handle it, they'll figure it out. And the move in culture is, as McWhorter says here, it's, first of all, it's inevitable, but inevitable, but it's also well worth it for a reason he doesn't really mention. And that is that as we evolve, and as particularly as we move the mainstream more into a, you know, a, a more fluorescent green, um, there's a deep subjectivity that comes online. We really want to be seen for who we are. We want to express who we are. Everybody gets to do that. You know, that's not really a modern um, sensibility, but it's a postmodern sensibility, a progressive sensibility. No repression on basic identity. And this is good. You know, we're, people are going to be all kinds of which ways. And the, um, you know, the, the, the roles and stereotypes and rigid categories will continue to uh, complexify. And that is, uh, you know, welcome to the march of progress. And one of the reasons why we only get a lifespan and then we have to die because <laughs> at some point we just can't keep up with this stuff. And I think I may be in that. So anyway, I, I, I wanted to uh, point that out and, and also to, you know, get into this piece that um, McWhorter didn't, which is this idea of seeing people for who they are in, in these uh, gender fluid ways. People are far more gender fluid than we were taught that they were. Even though we knew when we were kids, I was a, I was a gay kid in the Steel Valley of Western Pennsylvania in the, my teenage years in the 70s. And I knew I couldn't uh, be who I was. And there were other kids in my class that were, you could see they were had a harder time hiding it. And they paid the price. And if only there had been a way, you know, forward, and there is now. And the New York Times is very much behind this. And I wanted to share another article that they had. This was in the Sunday New York Times Magazine a couple weeks ago. And it's from an article on this camp that was started called Camp I Am. And I found the online version and I'm gonna share it. And there it is. And, um, and it's about these kids who are, you know, don't fit into the typical categories. And so it, it starts with, my story is so atypical for trans people. I know very few people who express their gender the same way I do. At camp, it was just me being me. And then I'll read this. 14 years ago, the mother of a gender non-conforming son organized a summer camp of sorts where her child and others like him could wear frilly pastel nightgowns and tend to their My Little Ponies together. Only three other families showed up at that first summer, but the camp grew quickly. It was called Camp I Am. 
In 2008, the photographer Lindsay Morris took her son there and began taking pictures of some of his fellow campers. More than a decade later, she asked many of them to be photographed again as they entered adulthood. So this is like a photo essay here, and I'll just scroll through it because I know most of you are watching on YouTube. And this is Hannah, who was assigned male at birth, uh, and she is 18, and she tells her story, and here's pictures of her, pictures of her when she was young at camp, performing at camp, other picture of her now. So you can see that this is a, a girl by any, um, well, maybe not by any definition, but certainly presents that way. Same here with Nicole, 19. And you can see her and when she was a little girl, uh, again, assigned male at birth. Elias, who is male, uh, he uh, just likes to, he would be called, oh, this is so quaint and kind of, he'd be a transvestite. He's a boy who likes to dress up as a girl. And he always did, and he still does, and he's a designer now, and look at him, he's fabulous. And Ryan, he, you know, keeps the male name. It's all various different which ways. And you can see that Ryan certainly presents as a female now, Danny, and on and on and on. There's several of them, look at them. I hope this is showing through. But when you see these kids, this is a little uh, assigned female at birth, but like voice things and there and so on. And um, so, you know, the New York Times is very much behind presenting this cultural way forward so that people can express themselves in all the various which ways that they want to in ways that are fluid, that may be this way this year and another way another year. And again, this is very disorienting to people my age, even though I'm gay, you know. I was disorienting to people back in, uh, you know, my day, earlier days. So, you know, again, welcome to human evolution. What the New York Times hasn't covered that I've seen, and perhaps they have, but, you know, there's, a, of course, a lot of controversy around this gender fluidity. It's not particularly welcome in modern sensibilities. It's, it's seen as, you know, a, a, a great evil, really, in traditional circles. And, um, you know, we see that in various countries with the center of gravity to traditionalism. We see that in the Taliban, you know, we'll see if they start executing gays again. I guess there has been some of that. Uh, but, um, you know, in the developed countries, this is a move that's happening. And um, the, the fuller story would include um, and this is what I'm not sure I've seen the New York Times cover is the detrans movement, the movement you see it in, in on Reddit. There's a big, there's several big communities there of people who have transitioned and now they want to transition back. This actually will probably be more and more acceptable, but of course, a lot of them have surgeries, a lot of them have uh, delayed. Uh, 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 their uh, adolescent, uh, their um, puberty, 
and there's consequences to that. And there's an ideology around letting everybody be who they are that has itself become oppressive. And again, welcome to the culture wars. But a bigger story would include that. But I can't critique this story for that reason because not every story can cover every issue. And when you see these stories here in this camp I am, you can see that, thank God, you know, that's a girl, you know, thank God that there's a path for that little born as a boy to be the girl that she feels she is on the inside and there doesn't seem to be uh, much regret in these kids. So um, again, we're just figuring this out people. And uh, I, I'm, I'm very happy that John McWhorter through his weight as a linguist uh, around the pronouns. And um, yeah, I think it's a really sort of an interesting move in the whole New York Times kind of territory. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I'll cover, uh, I'll get into a, another story here. This is the story about the submarines being sold to the Australians and the French thought they were going to get the contract and the Americans got the contract and it was a big diplomatic kerfuffle and uh, France recalled their ambassador and, um, and if this is, this is the coverage, this is one of the stories. This is written by their Paris correspondent of the New York Times, uh, Noramitsu Onishi. And um, the, the headline is, an uncomfortable question in France. Are we still a great power? The failed submarine deal with Australia raises questions about whether there is an unbridgeable divide between France's vision of itself on the world stage and its actual power. And um, so here, here's what Onishi writes. He says, Europe is speckled with fading former imperial powers, but France has clung more than most to its past as a great power, still seeing itself as having global interests, partly because of territorial possessions in the Indo-Pacific and the Caribbean. Imbued with a sense of grandeur, France harks back to the Enlightenment to speak about fighting obscuritanism in the world today and proffers its secular universalism as a model for modern societies. It often punches above its geopolitical weight, though it also overreaches. And um, okay, I'll read this next paragraph too, because it continues the point. He says, steeped in history, France still sees itself as occupying a premier rank in the world's pecking order. France also has difficulties dealing with emerging powers, quote, like an old aristocrat who's now forced to dine next to a peasant who's become rich and he finds that unbearable. <laughs> so, you know, he, he's sort of, I think, expressing that sort of nostalgic view of France and that France has as a, 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 of itself. And uh, I just, from an integral perspective, want to stress that that, you know, France did birth the Enlightenment, <laughs> you know. Uh, it does have this secular um, uh, sort of flavor and, and, and sensibility that is a universal model for modern societies. It does, it, it, that's all true. And we want France to continue 
to be French and have its Frenchness. And, and that's part of what is, um, you know, he, he, he writes about it with a sort of a, a detached uh, nostalgia, uh, but it's actually a real thing. Uh, national identities need to be honored and brought into a future integration because Frenchness means something. We're not gonna let go of Frenchness. That's not going to go into the past. Even the sort of uh, grandeur and, you know, uh, inflation that all countries have, particularly, you know, the, it's bringing that sort of traditional triumphalism that we're the greatest country into the modern world where we know that actually the world's turning and France is, um, you know, it's not a colonial power anymore. It, actually, let me just go on. He, he, he describes it very well. He quotes a French diplomat here, and here, here's what he writes. The French alternative to hardline American position with China is important. We need a French policy in the Pacific because we have commercial, economic, and territorial interests there, but the means we have now don't allow us to be a credible alternative to the United States in facing China. While France's military is dwarfed by that of the United States or China, it does remain one of the world's strongest and is backed by a world-class domestic military industry. France has five to 7,000 soldiers in the Pacific at any given time, 20 to 40 military aircraft and seven naval ships. It's the only European nation with genuine military strength in the region. In the region. France also has a seat on the UN Security Council, giving it a measure of hard power around the world. But for the great power that France once was, it's sometimes just not enough. So, you know, again, this points to that letting go of the identity of the, uh, you know, basically colonial power, uh, moving into a modern sensibility where modern countries don't really worry about fighting each other. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of quaint, this recalling of the ambassador and this diplomatic kerfuffle as if there is any danger of the United States and France really getting coming to blows in any significant way. I know this is a significant issue and there are real consequences. And so there's nothing where that's not true. But this is, uh, it, it's like when, they found out during the Obama administration that we were uh, bugging Angela Merkel. And it's like, what? What, 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 why are we doing that? And it came and it went, and it turns out that that kind of stuff goes on. And I don't know, remember the end of the story, but the thing that we can take um, comfort in and faith in actually, is that we don't have to worry about that kind of stuff in the bigger picture because modern countries don't fight with modern countries. And when you think of the history, not so long ago, 70 years ago, uh, with World War II, before that World War I, and before that endless wars in Europe around power and different duchies and kings and kingdoms. And I, I saw a YouTube that showed European borders changing from like 1400 to 2000. And it was like a bowl of worms. And every one of those movements was some kind of come to blows, wars, endless. And now the idea of France and Germany, for instance, going to war with each other, what are the chances? 
basically zero. You know, it's not going to happen. Now, do modern countries go to war with pre-modern countries, with traditional countries? Yes. I, I think that may be over too, but we just did it twice with Iraq and, well, Libya, if you want to call that, and, and, um, and certainly Afghanistan. And I think we learned that you don't even do that anymore. There's other ways to work with uh, developing countries like that. And we're talking about early development where it's pretty brutal. Um, but nevertheless, um, modern countries don't go to war with each other. China is an interesting uh, exception. And that's sort of what they're talking about here in this article is France has a more accommodating idea of how to work with China than the US does. And I'm, I don't have a particularly strong opinion about that, except to say that China is a, an interesting exception in that it has, you know, I think it's 1.4 billion people. And again, centers of gravity here, uh, maybe 400, three or 400 million of them have a modern sensibility. They really want to be knitted into the world. They, you know, the, the internet and they're aware. And, and then there's the billion that are more traditional and traditional peoples are dangerous. I mean, I, I, you know, the Germans, when we were at traditional stages of development, traditional peoples fight with each other because they think that's what they need to do. That's the way forward. Modern people see that the way forward is to trade and to work together and get interested in each other and actually have sex and get married and, you know, mix, mix it up. That's a big deal. That's a big move in human development. So, you know, we'll see where China goes. I wish them the best in moving that big country forward into a more modern sensibility. I see that they are, you know, doing remedial, um, Xi Jinping is doing remedial work on a strengthening the a, a healthier traditionalism, we hope. Uh, but, you know, that is, the, you know, the, the, that's when, when modernity takes over as it has in Western Europe, Australia, these countries, I would say, you know, barring the asteroid taking us back to the Stone Age, never are going to fight again. And the whole world will catch up to that. And war will be something that our progeny will look back and say, God, look at what those people did. So that's the, the sort of that modern center, center of gravity that I think we can count on in the world. And then there's, you know, a postmodern sensibility that is arising worldwide too, that I think we can see in the story that uh, the New York Times covered also very well continues to cover. And that is the vaccine situation relative to the developing world. And the fact that here I am contemplating my third, you know, my booster shot, because I'm over 65. And there are countries in the world where they're, you know, the vast majority of people, vast majority are waiting for their first shot. And, you know, they don't make vaccines. We're talking about African countries. There was a, a, um, a story last night uh, that Chuck and I were watching. We were having our dinner and watching PBS nightly news. And PBS is very much in the same sensibility of the New York Times. It's orange, green, getting greener all the time. Uh, so they're talking about, and this, this is the upside of this. Um, uh, there's a big upside to green journalism. And this is one where there's a very significant story 
from the inside where they sent real reporters and camera people and they did a serious, I don't know, seven or eight minute story on the vaccine situation and the COVID situation in Uganda. And so they interviewed the health minister of Uganda, uh, this woman who's very, you know, well-educated and she's talking about the vaccines and the situation there and how they're being dispersed and where they're coming from. And her thesis, of course, is there's not enough, send more. You people have three doses, we don't have any. And she's talking about licensing the vaccine so that they can manufacture it themselves. And, you know, I thought that was really interesting to see all the stuff that's actually happening, how much they sort of have their arms around it in a certain way. And then they interviewed the young woman who was the head of an NGO there, and she was expressing her moral outrage at not only the developed world for ignoring, in her words, the, um, the, the plight of the poor in the world. Um, I, I will note that Biden is, I think, uh, 1.1 billion doses has, have been promised or sent and you know the, the the world is waking up to this that we're seeing these kinds of stories awaken our own moral sensibility that you know it's just okay that I'm doing this and that that nothing's happening there these are stories that would never have been told before and they were talking about how the the corruption in uh, Uganda and how so the vaccines are being lost they're being sold there's a black market there are these black market treatments for people with COVID that are where they're literally requiring deeds to their land before they can be treated and showing these horrid conditions in hospitals. And so, you know, we're watching this story and I'm looking at it from an evolutionary point of view. And Chuck says to me, as we're watching it, he says, it's a spiral, isn't it? And I thought to myself, yes, Chuck, yes, because Chuck likes spiral dynamics and, and you know, uh, uh, integral. And, and it said, you know, the, the country, if you think about Uganda, for heaven's sakes, ruled by Idi Amin back in the 70s, the butcher of Uganda, killed 500,000 of his own people, kept heads of his um, enemies in his freezer. You know, he was a cannibal. And so look at how this country, even though, you know, it's um, behind and it, there's lots of it that's, there's still the corruption, but the, the movement and the fact that the world is waking up to this and we're sending vaccines and we're licensing and, uh, you know, I, by the next pandemic, we'll have a lot of that sorted out. And so, yes, it's a spiral. And um, so I'm thinking this to myself. And then he follows it up and he says, yeah, a spiral right down the tubes. <laughs> so I said, I thought you meant a spiral upward. And he said to me, you would think that. <laughs> so I did, and I just did again. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for listening in as we wander our way through the news, uh, through mostly the lens of the New York Times, which is evolving as we all are and everything is. So thank you again. Uh, you can find all my stuff at thedailyevolver.com. Thank you for the post progressive post for hosting me with this podcast. You can go to my YouTube, Daily Evolver YouTube and subscribe. 
if you want, and all that other stuff. The other thing I would say, I, 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 it's been a, it's changed my life, and I recommend it because I know those of you who are not watching live are watching on YouTube. And there's that little gear down in the bottom right that you can click, and you can adjust the playback speed. And uh, I'm, I'm all for playing me back fast if you want. I'd play everything fast, and it, it's amazing how much you can take in. Uh, and, and, you know, half the time or 25% left time or whatever. Anyway, that's uh, my thoughts for today. And uh, thank you for joining me. And we'll see you next time for another edition of This Week of the New York Times every Friday. See you then.